This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Right now, we feel like we're one step further from the cliff of war. We might hop right back in. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah Wildman, FP's print editor, and you're listening to The ER. In the studio with me in Washington, D.C. today is Dan DeLuce, FP's chief national security correspondent. And joining us is Mickey Bergman, a policy professional with nearly 25 years in various aspects of strategic diplomacy. Mickey is vice president at the Governor Richardson Center for Global Engagement. He's previously been the executive director of the Global Alliances Program at the Aspen Institute, a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, and a consultant to the Clinton Global Initiative. In the course of Mickey's work managing private diplomacy efforts in North Korea, Cuba, Myanmar, and across the Middle East, Mickey has worked on what he calls fringe diplomacy, which he defines as an innovative discipline exploring the space just beyond the boundaries of states and government's authority in international relations. Mickey, I wanted to start with a few points that you and Governor Richardson brought up in an op-ed you wrote for The Washington Post on March 10th which was titled, Kim Jong-un won't give up his nukes, Trump should meet with him anyway. And you argue that the president should not treat this as a photo op, but as a diplomatic project. You talked about Trump's roller coaster ride and his inflammatory comments, including the tweet, Little Rocket Man in October, and right up to the acceptance itself, which was pretty dramatic and done apparently, or at least reportedly, without talking to his advisors. And you say, but North Korean leaders have always craved the prestige that would come with a bilateral face-to-face between their leader and an American president. Giving him one now would be bold, but it's no guarantee that it would shift North Korea's core negotiating stance. Mickey, let's start there. What is that negotiating stance? And since you've been in the negotiating room, why don't we start with talking about what it feels like to walk into that room? I think it has a few elements to it. The first one is what we want, which is denuclearization and they use that word very freely, but what it means to the North Koreans is different. We need to distinguish between stopping the development of nuclear and ballistic missile programs and disarming existing arsenal. When Donald Trump talks about it, he's talking about disarming fully. I'm not sure he understands necessarily that that's not what's on the table. Uh, from the North Korean perspective, yes, they are willing to put on the table the, the, the development of the program. Uh, both missile and and nuclear one, meaning stopping the test, stopping the development, having it verified, but they're not going to disarm. They're not going to to be, to take away their capacity of uh, um, of having nuclear weapons. They haven't intended to do it in the past, and in the last year, they have even more good reasons not to do it, and that's because the the president is proving that even a signed agreement, looking at what he's doing with the agreement with Iran, is not a guarantee that the U.S. will keep it. So therefore, it will be foolish from their perspective to actually give up their nuclear arms, but they are willing to, to give up the, uh, the development, the program. Um, that's one thing. On the other hand, there's the part of what they want, which is the withdrawal of U.S. assets from the Korean peninsula, stopping the exercises, limiting them, all, everything in that, in that zone. In return, um, they also want full engagement, if you think about it regionally or bilaterally. They want to be treated as a nuclear uh, power in that uh, in that way. So I think that's the overall puzzle that is on the table. It has been on that table in that format for a long time. 
no American president has taken it before because it's a tough pill to swallow, uh, politically speaking. Donald Trump just said, you know, let's, let's explore it. Let's, let's go talk. I'm all for it. I believe in engagement. The question that I have is whether he understands what the deal that is on the table really is. Dan, we were talking about this earlier before the podcast, that it does feel like we've been on the brink of war and, you know, kind of hearkening back to the Cold War era anxieties of my childhood. I wonder if, if that's been correct or if that's been overblown and, and how we got to that point. Yeah, I think it's not probably overblown. We're not at a Cuban missile crisis moment, but no question that the rhetoric has an effect and words matter and the rhetoric is kind of off the charts on both sides. And you've never had a U.S. president speak like this. It was always couched in a different kind of language. Warnings were issued in a more calibrated, careful way. And so I think the North Korean regime is very confused. And we've never had a very good insight into North Korea. It's, it's kind of a black hole for intelligence. And then on top of that, you have a situation where I think a lot of people feared that there might not be a deliberate war, but there would be an accidental war where someone holds a missile test, someone holds a military exercise, bombers or fighter jets flying near North Korean airspace. The North Koreans misread it or misunderstand it or misinterpret whatever our actions are. So that's a huge danger. We wrote an article called Armageddon by Accident all about that. And U.S. forces are definitely on pretty high alert. They are anyway, but I think they are more than ever. And of course, you know, what if North Korea holds an atmospheric test, which they've threatened to do, test a nuke over the ocean? How does the U.S. respond to that? And if the U.S. feels it must respond, how will the North Koreans interpret that? So the problem is these kind of war games that are played by the Pentagon and by these think tank experts. It's often the case, it's not surprising, right, that, you know, what you do is not interpreted the way you think it will be interpreted, which is really dangerous when it involves bombs and artillery and fighter jets and nuclear missiles, right? So in Vietnam, right, we would, we would escalate or de-escalate bombing in Vietnam, and we thought it would have a certain effect and be interpreted in a certain way, and it wasn't. It had the opposite sometimes. So there's that. And then, of course, the other thing is that we don't know what will happen in this meeting because Trump is this volatile, unpredictable, inexperienced person. And then Kim also has clear insecurities in his own position and own situation. So it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on a meeting as opposed to having lower level diplomatic exchanges and a dialogue that would build over time. And maybe you would have confidence building measures and maybe you would have incremental steps and they agree to not test for another six months and we agree not to maybe hold massive exercises etc. Right. And then eventually maybe the heads of state meet, but no, it's all front loaded. So this it's high risk. But I'm, I'm curious what Mickey would suggest or advise the White House to do in this situation. How do you how do you approach a meeting with this totally bizarre and hermetically sealed regime? And I think one thing that is important and I, and I would love to dive into into the dynamics from my experience a little bit of how they negotiate. It, it, it's really important for us to try and think about it. You said, you know, we have this intelligence black hole. We don't really know. We I like to refer to people that we don't understand as crazy and irrational. The North Koreans are extremely rational. They're not crazy. What goes into their calculations is something that is a little foreign to us. And the best way to understand it is to actually engage with them. In my experiences there, I focused a lot on that and trying to understand what is, if I'm a North Korean elite, what, what, am I, what is my ID? Like, how, how do I look at the world? How do I look at myself? Um, and I figured out, so if I'm a North Korean, I, I have three pillars. In terms of that. Number one, 
the world is out to get me. You need evidence to that. The war in Japan, from the Japan that started, the Chinese, the, the Americans, the, the Russians, the South Koreans, everybody's trying to get us. And if you try and convince them that, hey, Americans don't really think about you, they don't care about you unless you blow up a nuclear missile, blow up a nuclear bomb or, or shoot a missile, they will say, oh, you just tell us that so we lower our guard and then you'll invade Pyongyang. So they would think that when we turn these microphones off, we're actually talking about the plans of how to invade Pyongyang. Uh, and there's nothing in that psyche that you can actually reverse. There's nothing you can say, oh, seriously, guys, we're not. It, it's not. It's in, the, it's in the making. That's number one. So the world is out to get us. The second element is they see themselves, it might not be geographically, but they see themselves as a small country surrounded by giants. Socioeconomically speaking, think about the Chinese, think about the Russians to the north, think about the South Koreans, there's often us hovering over, not to mention the Japanese. They see their role in protecting their own thing as almost like guerrilla fighters, which is, makes sense because the grandfather, the father of the nation of North Korea, was a guerrilla fighter against the Japanese. So they're poking. They constantly need to poke in order to establish themselves. But they're not interested in an all-out war. There's no scenario in which they win that, and they know that. And if you take, so number one, the world is out to get us. Number two, we're surrounded by giants. That leads me to number three. If you take one plus two, in order for us to maintain our way of living, we need to have an asymmetric threat towards our neighbors and the world. And that is where you see the fundamental fact of what I mentioned before. Their nuclear program, the threat, the arsenal that they have is their guarantee so there's nothing we can do or say in the short term or medium term that will make them give that up. There needs to be a lot of security and, and stability and trust before they can do that. So that calibrates what it is that we can do. It's not great. We don't love it, but it's the best we can do now as Americans. So that's one thing, I think, in terms of the pillars. Uh, now, diving in a little bit into, into the way they're, they're doing their, um, their negotiations, there's a I'll say a couple of things. The first, um, when I was there negotiating a year and a half ago uh, for the release of Otto Wombier, um, I, I don't work for the government. I don't have the government authority. It's a, we're non-for-profit. We work on behalf of the families. So I can negotiate. I cannot negotiate policy. It was about you know putting together a package of mutual humanitarian interests. With it, of course, from our perspective, is Otto Wombier. From their perspective, uh, there were floods, terrible floods in North Korea. They wanted some assistance, not directly from us to the government, but to NGOs that work in this, in this field. Um, and there is the issue, which is a huge issue, which is remains of U.S. servicemen from the Korean War. Not all of us remember, but there's 5,300 remains um, of MIAs and POWs still in North Korea that need to, become, need to come back to their families. As we were talking uh, through this, I realized when I landed in Pyongyang, the meeting with the highest ranking counterpart that I had, which was the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Minister, uh, Vice Minister Han, was scheduled for the last afternoon. And your instinct is, wait a minute, why am I wasting two and a half days here before when the in-person meeting, which you think is where you negotiate, is happening at the end? But because I have experience with them, I understand that the two and a half days leading to that, when I'm handled by foreign ministry people is when they're getting from me what it is that I'm there to offer. What are the guidelines? What do I have an authority to actually talk? Because they need to submit this to their principal because none of them have an authority to make a decision. He needs to take it up. So by the time he meets with me, he already has an answer from his superior about what he needs to tell me. And, and that's completely opposite of what Trump is trying to do here. He says, let's meet first face to face. Now there is... If you think about negotiations in the, um, 
if you have the two principals meeting and they're actually negotiating over a deal, none of them have the ability to get back from it. If they have their people negotiating and reach something, then they can go back to the leaders and the leaders can say, well, I like it, or maybe I don't like it. So you lose that flexibility. So I'm not sure that the meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un will be actually negotiating on substance. If I were to give him an advice, if he would listen, would be take it as a first step. Listen. It might be a little counterintuitive to think of the president sitting and listening on that, but I do think that's important. You know, it's funny. I actually thought reading your op-ed this weekend that you were a little bit offering to be the team that went in. You said, you know, that Trump should listen to people who've had experience on the ground, to negotiating teams, to people who have negotiated conflicts in the past. All of these things do define you and Governor Richardson. Are you auditioning? First of all, I'm, I'm sure we would love to help and assist. We are Americans and we're, we're playing team. There are others who have been there who have negotiated. There's a lot of track two work that is being done. There's a lot of former officials. I doubt that the president is going to look at Governor Richardson and use his advice. I think he should. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I of his Clinton relationship or because of something other than that? I, I don't think they know each other necessarily, but it's a, it, it's a matter of when we actually engage with the, with the administration to the extent that we do, there's a big difference there between the professionals and the politicals. There is almost, we had a few instances in which we were talking specifically the North Korean topic and the, the experts were excluded from the meeting, but the political stayed. And so I'm not sure whatever dynamics happening with the administration, it doesn't yield itself towards an administration that is looking for outside help. Just last week, the, the, the last administration official to visit Pyongyang and actually get something tangible, which was get Otto Wombier back, Joseph Yoon, the special envoy to North Korea, retired. Yeah. And he retired quite showily, I think. Yeah. What happens? I mean, this is something we've been talking about a lot here, the ways in which we have holes around the world and sort of zones of non-influence. We actually have a piece on it in, in the upcoming print issue. The ambassador to Mexico also quit with a similar statement that she could no longer really successfully work during this administration. What happens when we lose that institutional memory? What happens when you lose someone like that who understands the peninsula and, and who's filling in that vacuum? It seems almost like it's a planned policy. Nobody's filling up any of the spots. I mean, we don't have an ambassador in, in South Korea. We, I, I haven't heard of anything, anybody stepping in as special envoy. Maybe it will come in. I heard some rumors that, he, that the president will need to look at it. Um, so you need to look at who's there, not who might be coming in. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I yeah, think exactly. that's, that's where it is. And who's there is a lot of generals. This has been a, a topic, right? The, the State Department's kind of hollowing out or marginalization. And I think sometimes people's eyes glaze over But here with North Korea, now you see where this is really, really serious. Mm -hmm. This is really high stakes. Mm -hmm. This is war and peace, Cold War level danger, potentially. And we don't have an ambassador to South Korea. The one who was almost appointed, Victor Cha, had negotiated with the North Koreans. He was one of those small number of people who were involved in those talks during the Bush administration. He abruptly was cast aside. There was reportedly a difference of opinion. I think he was uncomfortable with this threat, threatening uh, a potential preemptive military strike, quote-unquote, bloody nose. And then, yes, Joseph Yoon, the envoy to North Korea, who also has had direct contact, he stepped down, apparently in frustration. We haven't heard from him directly, but that's the strong suspicion. 
And so there is no one to fill those kind of, you, there aren't th that many diplomats experienced who know the area, who've been there, who've actually met with the North Koreans. And so here you have the problem with this overemphasis on the military and current or former generals, as qualified and as capable as some of them are. You actually need to have experienced diplomats when you're trying to negotiate with this regime. And it sounds as though we were also making mistakes that are on the kind of even more superficial level but may have impact. I keep thinking about Vice President Pence at the Olympics not standing when the North Korean delegation comes in, not acknowledging Kim's sister. What does something like that do, I mean, for the regime and, and how they read the tea leaves of that sort of moment? Somebody made an analogy that I really liked, probably because of my background. It's almost as if the Israelis and the Palestinians came together and went to the Americans and said, guys, you're too militant for us. Let us solve our own problem. And the Americans said, fine, just make sure we're invited to the peace signing ceremony. And then to that ceremony, the Americans show up with the parents of victims of terror. It's almost like trying to, 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 uh, uh, to dig into the raw emotions. Not necessarily where you think the U.S. should be in terms of a spoiling impact. And I, I suspect, I don't know for a fact, but I think that the, the, the South Korean president probably kept a lot of the details um, uh, out of the Americans for the fear of the Americans spoiling it. The second thing with it, and we need to remember historically, for the North Koreans, the symbolic gestures are extremely important. A handwritten note, a little, you know, a little gesture. Um, uh, so what we've seen in the Olympics, I think, is significant. We could have, we could have leveraged, it, leveraged it much, much better. But we didn't. And do you think the moment we're in right now is all about impulsiveness? Yes. I mean, it's hard to get into the, into the mind of the president of the United States, but we can do a very kind of simple analysis on, on who he is and what he stands for, not necessarily policy, but who he is as a person. Um, he, he views himself as, you know, the master negotiator. Um, and yet he makes mistakes on this that seem to be very um, uh, uh, random or, or amateur. I think he is locked into into a mentality of negotiating that is real estate. And his opening statement, by the way, it's a risky uh, proposition here for a personal meeting. His opening statement in negotiations, typically, he sits in front of his counterpart and he says, screw you and walks away. And everybody says, oh, my God, this is the end of it. No, no, that's his opening negotiation stance. Paris Climate Agreement walks away. That's the opening. We haven't retreated from that yet. We can't. It takes time. He might have time to pedal back as much as he needs. But by doing that, he's showing his strength and then he deals with whatever he needs to deal. If he pulls that off with Kim, right now we feel like we're one step further from the cliff of war. Mm -hmm. We might hop right back in. Well, that's a terrifying space to end <laughs> with. <laughs> You want the positive part of it, of what I think? Here, again, I, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I, I have, I have a, here, here's, yeah. here's the thing, and I, I truly believe in it. I, I think that the deal that is on the table, and again, it's President Trump can, can try and make it feel as if, oh, my God, it's all an accomplishment of maximum pressure. That he's, that's the point. Like, he, in order to stay sane in all of this, you can't ride the roller coaster with him. The this, this stable line of what the, the deal is at the end of the day is there. It has been there. That deal is not great because we still have a nuclear-capable North Korea as a result of it. But you know, it's as good as it gets right now, and it buys us time to work with them, to build it up. Ten years ago, if somebody would looked at the Middle East and told us that it would look the way it looks now, we would say, you're nuts. Ten years is a long time. 
the other thing to keep in mind is whoever was president, I mean, has anyone ever really negotiated a good deal with North Korea? I mean, I, I suppose there were the hostage release cases that you've been involved in, but in terms of the U.S. government rolling into Pyongyang and cutting a deal and getting the best of them, I don't think that's happened. You, you know, there was the Madeleine Albright gambit, which went nowhere. The Bush administration tried. It's, it's a pretty difficult set of issues, setting aside personalities and whoever's in the White House. My understanding of the Madeleine Albright gambit in 2000 was that President Clinton was dangled the option of real talks, sent Albright over, and she was given a, a big show, including a, a sort of stadium um, military exercises with the projection of a, of a nuclear ballistic missile on the wall or something like that. In any case, she came back and said, there, there aren't talks to be had. Uh, I obviously was not in the in the room for any of that, but it, she, it didn't feel to her like a real offer. And, and so Clinton derailed them before they began. But I don't know that it was – he certainly seemed – willing to, to, to take that step. I mean, you know, Clinton liked to be, you know, he wanted to be the one to have handshakes across the world, which, you know, that's understandable, but this one didn't seem to be there. I, I actually sat in a fascinating conversation just a few weeks ago when we talked about it with North Koreans. Um, and uh, and their question, what surprised me was their question to us was, why did Clinton in his last year, they felt like there was a real opportunity there. Why did he choose to go on the Middle East instead of us? Because we, we, you know, we, we, were, we were there to, to make it. It's one thing to agree to a meeting. It's another thing to actually talk to these. We, we were been talking policy. Think about logistics. The likelihood of Kim Jong-un leaving the country, considering his insecurity is about what we want to do to him, is chances are very, very slim. He's probably going to invite the president to come into Pyongyang. Can you imagine Secret Service with their demands going into to protect the president of the United States in Pyongyang? I the can't. details of it. Oh, yeah, let's do it in May. I thought they were talking about Freedom House, though, on the border. Is that Still, not something that he has Kim ever left the country? Kim has never left the country. I think his we we talked about it before. I think his father left once on a train to China. His grandfather left once on a train to to Russia. Again, if you think about it, if you go back to what I said in terms of the way they're looking at themselves and the threats around them, uh, it, it's a it's a high proposition. The supreme leader of Iran never left the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you, yeah. I'm sort of curious, though, and I don't want us to, to go on too long, but how does this compare to other places you've negotiated? You know, Mickey negotiated for the Gilad Shalit release between Hamas and Israel. You've worked on a lot of high-level negotiations. How, how is this different? Funny enough, it's not that different. And when you negotiate and we realize, and again, I'm, I, I never work on behalf of, of governments, so it's, I have it an easier, you know, and, and I say I, it's, it's the governor. It's Governor Richardson. But uh, we have it easier because uh, we have only one agenda. It's bringing whoever is the loved one uh, back. Um, but when it comes to it, people are people. And it's about understanding who they are, understanding that there's very few people who are irrational in the world. I, I, I don't think I've met many. Um, uh, and that includes the president of Sudan, includes you know the Iranians, the, the North Koreans. It, people are rational. It's just trying to understand, even, even the president of the United States at the end of the day is rational, but you need to understand what goes into his calculations in his head. Now, typically in governments and um, uh, with leaders, there is a process that you know who's bringing the input in, how they calculate that. Uh, uh, with the president of the United States right now, I'm not sure what the process is. And it's one thing I've never imagined that I would be saying in a confrontation between the United States and, and North Korea. I think I understand the North Korean process better than I understand what's happening in the White House. 
<laughs> well, that's a good place to end, I think. Sorry. <laughs> um, Mickey Bergman, thank you for coming in. Mickey is the vice president at the Governor Richardson Center for Global Engagement. And I've been with Dan DeLuce. I'm Sarah Wildman. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostead. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.